So as I mentioned, today we begin our journey through the book of Galatians. And there's a temptation when journeying into a new sermon series or any study of a book of the Bible, such as we are today, there's a temptation to either spend an inordinate amount of time discussing the cultural and historical context of the book, all while forgetting to address the actual content of the book, or to go to the other extreme and just ignore the historical and cultural context, to ignore the background, and to think that we can look at the book with a proper understanding without, under, without knowing the background in which it's written. So my goal this morning, and over the course of the next couple of weeks, several weeks really, will be to provide enough of an understanding of the background of this letter to properly understand it, while not turning it into a mere academic exercise. In other words, it's my aim to preach this letter to the Galatians and not merely preach about this letter to the Galatians. We need to have enough background, but I hope to preach the actual Word of the Lord, not just to preach about the Word of the Lord. So for background, I'll simply say that this letter was written by Paul after he had visited the region of Galatia. And he's writing because apparently some of the believers there had fallen under the influence of individuals who were questioning the validity of Paul's apostleship. And they were questioning the fullness of the gospel that he preached. They said, is Paul really an apostle? Is this gospel that he preached really true? Is there more to this gospel? Does Paul himself have a full understanding? This letter was probably written, there's a couple of different theories about when this letter was written. I won't get into all the details of that, but I think if you read Acts 13 through 15, and I'd encourage you to do that this week, that this letter was written sometime in, the, in that time frame, between Acts 13 and 14, but prior to Acts 15, where Paul goes to the council in Jerusalem and he talks to them about ministering to the Gentiles. He writes this letter, he goes to Galatia in his first missionary journey, he goes to these churches this, in Galatia, Galatia is a region, not a city. He goes to several churches in this region. He preaches to them the gospel. He goes away and he hears that false teachers have crept in. Now, by the way, as is often the case, there were teachers who were coming into the church and teaching and adding to the gospel. The church's biggest threat is not often those outside. It's not those outside the walls saying, this Christianity thing is crazy. Don't believe any of it. It's those inside the walls. Who, who they start just a little off course and say, oh, why aren't we keeping the Sabbath? We need to keep the Sabbath. Or we need to practice circumcision. Or we need to whatever else we need to do. Or they, they twist the word just slightly. And as you go down that path, they get further and further off course. So Paul's writing to correct some errors. He's writing to show his apostleship the validity of his ministry, and the validity of his message. So with that background, I just want you to know that they questioned Paul's authority. These false teachers did. These, these people who, kept, who crept in, and they taught these new Christians that in order to have peace with God and to grow spiritually, they were teaching that they needed to keep the Old Testament law. And as we'll see over the next several weeks, this really troubled Paul, because in doing so, they were fundamentally changing the gospel message. You can't add to the gospel message without fundamentally changing the gospel message. Instead of a message of salvation by grace through faith, which results in good works, 
which by the way is good news, salvation by grace through faith, they were proclaiming a message of salvation by works, which is not good news. And in light of the fact that Scripture tells us that even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags, it's clearly not biblical to preach a message of salvation by works. Now when I talk about salvation, just for background, I'm not talking about just justification. The day in which you're saved and guaranteed a place in heaven. I'm not talking about that that specific act. I'm talking about justification. I'm talking about sanctification, the means by which God grows you and makes you holy. And I'm talking about glorification. That all three of those are elements of salvation. That God saves you, He is saving you, and He will one day save you. He saves you when you enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. He makes you more holy, and He carries you through to heaven when Christ returns. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about salvation. And what Paul is really talking about here in this letter to the Galatians. So with that kind of background in mind, let's jump into our text. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, Paul's ministry. Number one, Paul's ministry. He begins by saying in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now the word apostle simply means one who is sent, or sent one. And it's used to describe what one might call an ambassador or a representative. Our country sends ambassadors to other uh, other countries. They're representatives who represent the United States. And an apostle was an ambassador. Thus the term apostle is used in the New Testament in both a generic way and a very specific way. In other words, it's used as both a description and as a specific office. This is quite common in the Scriptures. And we don't do this a lot in the English language. I tried to think of some specific examples, and we'll cover those. But in, in the New Testament, it's quite common. For example, the word diakonos is used to refer to both servants in the church, those who serve the church in a general sense, and those who served in an official capacity as deacons. So you can be a servant, but you can also be a deacon who's actually in that role officially. In the same way, Scriptures speak of both elders, referring to people of stature and wisdom, and to the office of elder. Appoint elders in every city, Paul said. So you have this idea of those who are wise who have maturity and wisdom, they're elders, and then you have those who are appointed to the office of elder. Those who are tasked with overseeing and shepherding the church. So a modern day example, as I tried to rack my brain and think of this, was was that of a writer or a builder. You could say that someone is a good writer or that somebody's a good builder without them necessarily holding to that office, that specific job. Somebody can be can have the ability to build things, they can be a good builder, but that doesn't mean that they have taken on that vocation. I want to be careful here because I'm not just talking about the vocation of apostle. It's not like they did this just for money, but the point was you could be one who was sent in a generic sense, but you could also be one who was seen as, who was appointed as, one of the sent ones. One of the specific apostles. So to clarify this point, We'll look at some Scripture. We see 
this specifically in the Scriptures. We see the term apostle used in the generic sense in Acts 14, verses 13 through 15. It says this, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So the priest of Zeus comes, he wants to offer sacrifice, and it says, verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? So Paul, who's seen as an apostle, but also Barnabas here is seen as, a, as an apostle. He's one who was sent out. He's merely a sent one. It's used in that generic sense. Or in Romans 16, 7, it says, Greet Androniacus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, among those who are sent, who also were in Christ before me. Or in 2 Corinthians 8.23, it says, As for Titus, Paul writes, He is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers. The same word is there. They are apostles of the churches. A glory to Christ. They're a messenger. Or Philippians 2.25, Paul writes, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. He's your apostle and minister to my need. So that's a generic way in which you can use the term apostle as one who is sent, one who is a messenger. But then we also see some specific instances, some cases where this term is used specifically to refer to an office. And referring to specifically those whom Jesus appointed Himself. Those whom Jesus sent out as representatives personally and commissioned them for ministry. So there were a group of individuals whom Jesus said, I'm sending you out and I am commissioning you for ministry. You are to be my specific representative. Luke 16.13 says, When day came, He, this is Jesus, called His disciples to Him and chose twelve of them. He called all of His disciples. There were multitudes of them. He called them to Him and He chose twelve whom he also named as apostles. He appointed them as apostles, sent ones, sent by Jesus. Acts 2, verses 42 through 43 says this, Then, this is they, the early church, were continually devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. That is the twelve. They were devoting themselves to the teaching of the ones that Jesus had set apart. The twelve specific apostles and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, these specific men whom God had called, whom the Lord Jesus had called. Then Ephesians 2, 19-20, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of, the, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles. These are the specific apostles And the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So Paul, though not part of the original twelve, was indeed appointed to the office of apostle by Christ Himself. And you can read about this in Acts 9 when Paul is going to persecute Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. The Lord appeared to him and He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? And Jesus sets him apart for ministry. And He tells Ananias, He says, this this Saul also known as Paul, right? That his name was Saul and Paul, that one was his Jewish name, one was his Greek name. He's, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He says, this, this individual is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. 
And then Paul in Acts 26, when he recounts his testimony, he says, at midday, O king, he's talking to the king and he says, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. And I heard a voice. And it was God saying, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you? And, he, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he said, get up, go on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. That God spoke to Paul, called him out as an apostle, sent him out as one chosen to be an ambassador. So Paul was added to the twelve. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as of what was first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says, and He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He says, he appeared to me. After all these, one who was untimely born, one who was made an apostle later on, he appeared to me, and he says, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I wanted to destroy the church of God. But then he says this, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God called Paul and set him apart as an apostle. So Paul was an apostle in both a general sense, he was an ambassador, one who was sent, and he was an apostle in the specific sense, and that he was chosen and appointed by Christ himself to do this task. That's why Paul goes on in verse 1 to say, he was an apostle, not sent from man, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You know, we've prayed over people here before they've gone on mission trips, and we've sent them out. And in some sense, we could say they're apostles. They're sent ones. I remember praying over Julia, or praying over Morgan. I remember praying over the Mackiewiczes before they moved to Florida. Praying over them and sending them out, so to speak. But as we've sent them out, they're apostles of their sent ones of the church in the generic sense. Paul says, I'm an apostle, but not sent by men, but sent by Christ Himself, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. The point that Paul is making is that his ministry has authority. It has divine authority. Furthermore, look at the beginning of verse 2. He continues by saying, and all the brethren who are with me. So he says, Paul, one who is an apostle, chosen by God, and all the brethren who are with me. Paul's making the point that he's not alone as he writes this letter. Not only has he been appointed by God, but his ministry has also been recognized by other believers. Though his ministry is not from man, it is recognized among the brethren. That there's a group with him, and he says, I'm writing this, and they are with me in this. So having seen, number one, Paul's ministry that he's an apostle, that he's writing with authority, that the validity of his ministry rests not on himself or on the church who sent him, but on Jesus Christ alone. Having seen Paul's ministry, let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, Paul's message. Number two, Paul's message. 
Look at verses 2 through 4. Paul continues and he says this. He says, to the churches, note this is plural, many churches within a region. So he's speaking to all the local bodies. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He says, it's interesting here that he links God the Father and Jesus Christ. And when you compare what he just said, not from men, nor through the agency of man, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is not like those men. He separates Jesus from men. Not that he's saying that Jesus wasn't a a man, but he's saying that he's also fully God. Not like those men, but then here he links God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. What's rather noticeable here, it should be noticeable, is that Paul doesn't begin this letter with his typical affection and encouragement. But instead, he gets directly to the point. He wastes no time in pointing out the elements, the essential elements of the Gospel. That is, he says, the good news, there's good news that God has provided a rescue. A rescue through Christ's death and resurrection as a sacrifice for their sins. He points to the, the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for their sins. He points to the resurrection and he points to the purpose that it's all to rescue them from the present evil age. You see, he's looking forward to a day when there's no more sin, no more suffering. And he says, Jesus died so that you can enter into that rest. And God raised him from the dead, showing that he defeated death and sin. This is the beauty of the gospel, folks. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment that we rightly deserved. It's like standing in a court of law and the judge says, you're guilty. And Jesus comes in and says, I'll take that punishment. I'll pay the punishment. That ultimately, He died and was raised from the dead so that we might be rescued. Now at this point, it would be very easy to move on to the final point in our outline and just simply gloss over Paul's reference to grace and peace. He, He says... Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now grace, as you know, is unmerited favor. I've heard it said that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Right? That it's unmerited favor. It's not something that's earned, but it's favor bestowed on us, given to us freely. Unmerited. Unearned. And peace is the state of uh, rest or tranquility or a lack of trouble. It's not just about no longer being at war, but it's a state of rest and ultimate tranquility. And Paul says, grace and peace to you. Paul begins every one of his letters uh, with these words. And my fear is that they're so familiar to us that I'm afraid we overlook them. We just simply read by them. We don't pay any attention. And to move on at this point, I'm afraid would result in missing one of the key elements of this text. Specifically, Paul is not speaking about salvation only in means of justification, in regard to justification but also in terms of sanctification, their ongoing rescue, and glorification, their final rescue. 
Paul's not speaking of grace and peace as a one-time act. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm thankful that God's grace and peace have been given to you. But instead, he's praying that they continue to experience grace and peace. When he says, grace to you, he's saying the same thing that Peter says in both of his letters. He's talking about more grace coming. More grace. More peace coming their way. It's what Peter says when in First and Second Peter when he starts his letters. He writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you be ever increasing in grace. Ever increasing in peace. He's saying, I pray that you experience God's grace, God's unmerited favor, and peace, rest that can only be found in Him, and that you do so continually. That's why he continues on in Galatians 3, later on in verses 1-3, through and he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, how were you saved? By works of the law or by faith? And then he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, having started with the Spirit, having been saved, justified by the Spirit, by grace through faith, are you now being perfected? Are you now being sanctified by the flesh? He says, if you were saved by grace, why do you think that you're somehow going to be sanctified or made holy by your works? You see, Paul's really addressing a major problem here. And that is, I think, a problem that many of us have in the church. I think there's a natural tendency to think, oh yeah, I'm saved by grace, but then I grow by pulling myself up by the bootstraps. And I've struggled with this in my own life. I've struggled to understand how, what is this relationship between God's grace and growth? Because God tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet he says any growth that we have comes from Him. See, Paul says this is all about grace. That this rescue is not a one-time rescue. It's an ongoing rescue. You're rescued once and you continue to be rescued. He says, are you so foolish to think that you were saved by grace and now you're going to continue to be saved by your own works? It's all about unmerited favor. I'd encourage you to read a book um, by Jerry Bridges um, called Sanctifying Grace. Wouldn't it be awful if I got up here and forgot the name of the book? It's by Jerry Bridges, Transforming Grace. It's called Transforming Grace. Scratch what I just said. I'd encourage you to read the book by Jerry Bridges, Transforming Grace. It's an awesome book. And it addresses this very issue. How we, we're saved by grace, but then we somehow think that somehow we need to earn God's favor. Day by day. And we need to work out our salvation in such a way that we're paying God back for the grace He's given us. It's not at all what happens, folks. I stand up here on Sunday morning, and there are times when I think, have I lived a good enough life this week to be able to preach God's Word? And it's like, why am I thinking that? Of course the answer is no. It's only by grace that I'm going to be able to actually even stand up here. And when I stand up here, I've said this before, I'm more indebted to His grace than I was before. It's not like God was gracious to me and now I'm somehow going to pay Him back. God gave me 500 widgets of grace and I'm going to give Him five back by preaching a good message. 
It's that I need more grace to stand up here. I sit in that pew and I say, Lord, give me grace. I can't do this. Every Sunday morning I say, Lord, I can't do this today. I need Your grace. I'm more indebted to Him every day. And that's the way we live. We become more and more and more indebted to Him. So Paul's addressing a false gospel. He's saying, not only were you rescued, but you are being rescued from sin. And it is by grace through faith. It's through God's giving of His grace and peace to you. Paul's message to the Galatians was that God would rescue them from this present evil age. He's pointing forward to heaven. He's saying there's coming a day when this present evil age will be done away. And we live in in an already but not yet kind of world. Where we have victory, but yet victory has yet to be fully realized. We live in a world where Christ has died for our sins. He has given us the victory in Him. And yet we wait for that victory to be fully realized when He returns. So it's an already, not yet situation. Paul says, God will rescue you ultimately and finally from this present evil age. To think that this rescue, to think of it in terms of a one-time event is damaging. The rescue refers to God's past, present, and future rescue. Which includes rescue from the penalty of sin, rescue from the power of sin, and rescue from the presence of sin. You see how that works? We're saved from the penalty of sin. No longer does our sin get applied to our account. It's applied to Jesus' account. But we're also saved from the power of sin. Day by day, you can live a godly life. That's what Scripture says. If the Spirit resides in you, His divine power has granted you all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's rescuing you from the power of sin. But that'll never be ultimate and final this side of heaven. You're never going to have sinless perfection, though you're going to grow to be more like Jesus Christ, because that's His work in you. You won't have sinless perfection until the day of glorification when you're rescued from the presence of sin. So we look forward to that day. That day when we're rescued once and for all from this present evil age. And he says, and this rescue isn't going to come by human effort, but through the one who gave himself for their sins and the one whom God raised from the dead. This is the message, Philippians 2, verses, I think it's 12 and 13. Thought of it earlier and I wrote it down somewhere here. It's in these notes somewhere. I think it's 12 and 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, uh, not as in my presence only, but now so much more, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you say, how can you say, pastor, this isn't by human effort? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Do it. Act the miracle. But then he says, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He says, work out your salvation. Live a holy life. Defeat the power of sin in your life. For God will help you do it. God is the one who will do this in you and in your life and through you that this rescue is not only a rescue from the penalty of sin, but a rescue from the power of sin. That's Paul's message to the Galatians. 
And he says this rescue is going to come only by grace. Not by, as we'll read later, not by getting circumcised. Not by worshiping from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. It's going to be a gift of grace that he's going to grow you. Paul's addressing a false gospel. A gospel that says, you're saved by grace, but then you grow by your own effort. And he says, no, no. That rescue, that rescue is, is by grace. All three parts of it. The rescue from the penalty of sin, the rescue from the power of sin, and the rescue from the presence of sin is all by grace. So having seen, number one, Paul's ministry, and number two, Paul's message, let's consider the third and final point in our sermon outline. Number three, Paul's mission. Paul's mission. Look at verse five with me. Paul says, all of this, he says, is, is in accordance with the will of our God and Father. He says, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. The word translated glory in the New Testament carries this idea of honor and praise and worship. In other words, the Gospel points to the very fact that God is worthy of our worship. That because salvation is a gift of grace, not not as a result of human effort, He alone is the one who is to be honored and praised. He's the one who receives the glory. Paul not only understood his mission to glorify God by lifting up the truth of the Gospel, but he also encouraged his believers, his, his hearers, to do the same. He said, glorify God by lifting up the truth of the gospel, the gospel of grace. Colossians three fifteen through 17 he said this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, for His grace, that is. Thankfulness for His grace in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You see, his point is be thankful because thankfulness, remembering the Gospel, pointing to the glorious riches of God, His unmerited favor, Being thankful over that causes us to cry out in praise. Because thankfulness and crying out in praise, glorifying God, go hand in hand. That's why I say week after week, I I say, you know, I can tell you, you need to stop living like the world. I can stand up here and I can beat this pulpit, and I can tell you, you need to stop buying lottery tickets. What's wrong with you? I can tell you, you need to stop drinking too much. I can tell you, you need to stop. I I don't even know, watching stuff on TV. You need to stop being angry with your wife. I can tell you all these things that you need to stop doing. But when we lift up the gloriousness of the Gospel, when we're thankful that God rescued us, that produces in us a crying out of praise, a glorifying of God. That when the Gospel is made bigger in the life of the believer. He wants to honor God with his life. And the times when I find myself spiraling down in sin, they're the times when I've forgotten the Gospel. I've gotten sidetracked and I've walked away from God's glorious, unmerited favor. That's why in 1 Peter, Peter writes, he says, 
as one who has received a special gift, you've, you've been gifted, employ it in serving one another as stewards of the manifold grace of God. He goes on and says, so that in all things God may be glorified. Use the grace that you've been given. Be a good steward of that grace and use it to glorify God. See, Paul's mission was to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel. That's why he ends the statement with the word, Amen. Another word we could easily overlook. He says, Amen. Which means, truly. Or, so be it. He says, To whom be the glory forevermore, so be it. And this is both a statement of truth for Paul in his life, and a prayer for the believers in the province of Galatia. He says, so may it be the case in your life also. May you understand the beauty of the Gospel, and may you do all things for the glory of God. Todd Wilson says this, about this uh, final word in Galatians uh, 1.5. He says this, Paul writes them to voice their agreement to this great salvation confession. Paul invites them, excuse me, to voice their agreement to this great salvation confession by saying, Amen. Amen is the only point of entry into the, world, into the world of grace. You see, the way back to grace couldn't be simpler. We only have to say, Amen. And then he says, I'm quite tempted to say that it couldn't be any easier. But I don't want you to think that uttering Amen is easy. Because it's not. And why is uttering amen not easy? Because it's something that needs to be said from the heart. It's something that says, I can't save myself. I can't make myself grow. I can't get myself to heaven. It's only by grace. So the cry of our heart should be, Amen. So be it. Paul's mission was to glorify God with the proclamation of the Gospel and to see others say, Amen, it is true. So by way of review, we have Paul's ministry as an apostle, one who was sent out. Paul's message of salvation by grace. That, that grace was, was something that was going to be continually given. Not once given, but instead salvation was was both a point in time and a process that led to eventually heaven. And he says that all of that will happen by grace, that this rescue will happen by grace. And then Paul's mission. Paul's mission to glorify God with the proclamation of that message and to seek to hear others say, Amen, and agree with his message. So the question is, so how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message and then apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we need to recognize our own ministry as sent ones. We're not apostles. There are no apostles today. That There were apostles that Christ chose. That, that was an office that existed in, a, in the New Testament that Paul, Paul and the, the others were chosen specifically for that specific office by Jesus. But we're, we're apostles with a little a. That we are ones who are sent out. That the Great Commission tells us to go into all the world, right? To baptize people, to make disciples, to share the gospel. 
That we need to recognize our ministry as sent ones. That we're appointed by God. And then also recognized by the church. That there's a place that the church holds in this too. That just as Paul was recognized by the brethren, that so also we should say, what are my gifts? How am I sent out? How can I serve? I want the church to help me understand this. The church plays a role in this. God appoints us. The church recognizes that appointment. So we need to recognize our ministry as ones who are sent out. This isn't just about bringing people here on Sunday morning to hear me preach. If it becomes that, I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't live up to that pressure, right? To have you bring all your friends here so that I can tell them about Jesus. This is about us going out as individuals, living out our ministry as sent ones, appointed by God. Secondly, we need to proclaim our message. And our message is the same as Paul's. A message of grace, unmerited favor. A message of peace. A message of rest in Him. That rest can be found in Him. And what does this world desire? This world desires peace. They're tired. Desire rest. We should be saying rest can be found in Him. Continually found in Him. So our message is a message of grace and peace. And our message is a message of rescue. Rescue from the penalty of sin. Rescue from the power of sin. And rescue from the presence of sin. We need to proclaim that message just as Paul did. And then thirdly, we need to live out our mission. We need to live out our mission by glorifying God with our proclamation, just as Paul did. And we need to live out our mission by glorifying God in our response to the Gospel. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We respond to the Gospel and we glorify God in our proclamation and our living in light of the Gospel. And the way we live in light of the Gospel is by producing works in keeping with repentance. You say, but pastor, you said this is not about works. I'm saying, no, we're not saved by works. But Paul goes on in the the later chapters of Galatians. He says, says, both sides are wrong to say that somehow we're going to be saved by grace, but then we work out our salvation through our own human effort is wrong. But then to say, we can just live however we want and do whatever we want and not glorify God is wrong. That God's grace and peace that He continually bestows on us should produce in us a harvest of righteousness. So we glorify God with our proclamation and in our response to the Gospel. And then we say amen to the truth of the Gospel day by day. Not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. And just like Paul, we should seek others to do the same. We should seek out others and say, this is my prayer, that you receive God's grace, that you receive God's peace, and that you do so continually. And ask them, do you agree? Will you say amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. Thank You for Your peace. God, I just pray that we would be mindful of the truth of the Gospel. God, that we would recognize our ministry as sent ones, those who have been sent out into this world, appointed by You, 
to proclaim your truth. God, help us to do that. Help us to proclaim your message, your message of salvation, your message of rescue. God, that you have delivered us not only from the penalty of sin, but you are delivering us from the power of sin. And that you will one day deliver us once and for all from the presence of sin. God, help us to live out that mission, to glorify you with our proclamation, to glorify you with our lives, to seek to proclaim the truth of the gospel to others so that they too may say, Amen. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.